Well, tonight, uh, once again, we arrive at the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since it's the beginning of the year, and there are 52 Lord's Days in that Catechism, it is our goal to one way or the other begin where it begins and to end where it ends at the end of the year, having walked through this really beloved statement of faith and a statement of Reformed doctrine that was written about 500 years ago. Uh, Today, uh, it is that very famous first question and answer of the catechism. And kids, you know this. We've been through this one. You've probably been with it through your parent, with your parents at home. We worked on it together here after church on Sundays. So if you know it, say it nice and loud. And if you can, if you know how to read, don't read it. Say it from memory if you can. Okay, we're going to say, say uh, question and answer one and two. That's Lord's Day one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Question two, how many things must you know? to live and die in the joy of this comfort. Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. Comfort is the major motivating factor behind so many of our daily decisions. We want to be comfortable And I bet that that was a major motivating factor as you were buying gifts for your family and friends, maybe for yourself as well. Maybe the most comfortable gifts were the ones you bought for yourself. Um, Last week, I opened up one of my own presents. It was sent from my sister who lives in a different state. And I opened it to discover that it was a massage pillow. Very comfortable indeed. And Nicole and I were kind of amazed because after I opened it, we were talking about how we both had almost purchased the same thing for each other. And then changed our minds at the last second. Now we have one given to us from someone else. We all had comfort on the brain as we were thinking about what to give for each other. 
Comfort is at the very heart of what we want. It drives us in our decision-making. And comfort is also at the heart of our catechism, and one of the great themes of Holy Scripture. And uh, today, as we have just heard in question and answer one, it is the orienting theme of the catechism. It's what gets us off on the right step. And it is a, a truly lovely and beautiful way to begin to, begin to uh, learn, hopefully as children, but as adults as well, the doctrines of the faith. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That's that famous question that Christians have now been asking for 500 years and answering with that statement that summarizes the gospel. And then it follows up in question two by applying it to us. Now that you know what that comfort is, how can you have it as your joy and as your uh, truly to be as your comfort in life and in death? How many things must you know, it asks, to live and die in the joy of that comfort? And it gives three answers. You have to know your sin. You have to know how to be delivered from that sin. And you have to know how to say thank you to God for delivering you from that sin. Those are the three key factors, the three steps to having a truly spiritually comfortable life and death. Well, that answer to question two is also the outline of the catechism. It is the outline of the catechism. It tells us what is to come through the rest of it. It's like a big headline, a big banner at the very beginning to say what you are about to learn is sin and salvation and service. That's one of those, uh, th- those uh, uh, clever ways of remembering. Probably the more famous one is guilt, grace, and gratitude. You must know these things in order to actually hold on to and experience the comfort of the gospel, both in life and in death. Spiritual consolation. And so that's how we're going to proceed this evening. So our first point is simply guilt. We have to know our guilt. You cannot have a life of spiritual comfort, and you cannot arrive at the moment of your death, which will come in comfort, unless you first know the terrible problem that you and all of humankind faces. The Catechism says how great my sin and misery are. It's not a small problem, it's the biggest problem that we face. A financial crisis is not the biggest problem that we face. Bad government is not the biggest problem that we face. Lack of education is not the biggest problem that we face. Um, disasters of a contrived or natural sort are not the biggest problems that we face. Urban and rural violence is not the biggest problem that we face. You know, we could go on and on. The pundits tell us what our biggest problems are. But sin is actually the biggest problem. It will be that brick wall that at one point we will all run into. And hopefully we've already run into it and been woken up to it. And this is one of the main reasons why God has given us his law. Because the law shows us that we are sinners. Have you ever been just cruising on a back road somewhere? just enjoying the summer breeze. And then you suddenly pass a speed limit sign that says 30 miles per hour. 
and you've just been flying at like 90 miles per hour. You've given yourself away if you laughed. (laughs) You've done it. The law does that to us. The law snaps us awake to realize, oh, I'm actually breaking something right now. I'm breaking this law that has now come onto my conscience. It It has awakened me to the fact that there is some standard that I'm transgressing. And that is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, through the law comes knowledge of sin. He goes on to say, I wouldn't know that I coveted, committed the sin of coveting, unless the law said, you shall not covet. It awakens us. We'll look into that more deeply next week. But the point at at this juncture is that the law shows us that we're doing something wrong, and indeed that we're committing this wrong against a very great God. It's not just against a code, although the law is a written code, but it is not against a piece of paper or tablets of stone per se. The transgression is against a very great and fearful God who is a consuming fire. And the more you think about it, the more you dwell upon it, and really begin to parse it out, the more you realize that you sin pretty constantly. The opportunities are nearly endless. If uh, what you say and what you do want to take a break from sinning, then your thoughts will certainly uh, take up the, the endeavor, more than willing to. And behind every cause of suffering, as we peel back the layers and get to the center, we realize that it is sin which causes our misery, either our own sin or someone else's sin. That is in the background of all our misery, all the suffering that we face in this world. At the core, the cause is sin. We are indeed guilty before God, and our misery is the just punishment for that guilt. Our consciences have been given to us to speak out against us. They are, we, we're, we're supposed to have our consciences pricked. When the law comes and tells us we're doing something wrong, our conscience is supposed to respond to it. And so our conscience, to one degree or another, even hardened consciences, know that we do something wrong, that we're doing it against God. It is only the fool who says there is no God, Psalm 14 tells us, willfully suppressing the truth. In unrighteousness. We have great sin and misery. Like a tidal wave that is coming to crash. How great is our sin and misery? How do we know that it is so great? We know that it is great because the law begins to convict us. And because God's response to the greatness of our sin. Is a response that must be greater still. Ridding us of the guilt of sin has required the death of the Son of God. And brothers and sisters, that is step one to a life and death that are marked by comfort. Doesn't seem like it at first, but you have to know this in order to recognize the magnitude of God's grace in the gospel. You must know and acknowledge your sin before God. The law tells you, your conscience testifies against you, the evidence is all around you. Sin has come into the world and you have contributed to the misery that is in it. That's our guilt. But now God responds with his grace. 
And this is the second step. The second thing you must know to live and die in the joy of this comfort. You must know how you are to be delivered from all your sins and misery. And the key word here in the catechism is deliverance. A very important word in the Christian religion. To be delivered is to be rescued out of some desperate situation. And this is what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have done for us. If you're looking with me at question and answer one there in your order of service there on page 12, you'll see the, the, really, the really beautiful design of this opening question. All three persons of the Trinity make an appearance in this first question and answer. Jesus Christ, the second person, God the Son, appears first. He has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood and delivered you from the tyranny of the devil. In the Old Covenant, this guilt of sin and the payment to cover that sin was done through the sacrifices. That's why we read Leviticus chapter 16. The priests were to atone for the sins of the people, and the cost of that atonement was the death and blood of an animal offered upon the altar. And these sacrifices foreshadowed the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What had to be repeated year after year after year by priests who themselves were subject to death and who themselves were sinners and had to be atoned for is now done once and for all by our great and spotless and sinless high priest who is both priest and sacrifice. He's also the temple, by the way. He is uh, all of those things. His blood has been offered upon the heavenly altar and your sins are paid for. They are done. The cost is covered for all time. And that's why our catechism says that you belong to him. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And it is the price of the son of God laying down his life and allowing his blood to be spilled upon the everlasting altar. That is Jesus Christ, God the Son. God the Father is also involved, according to this first question and answer of the Catechism. We learn, and we will learn as we go along in the Catechism, that all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We do not believe, but firmly deny the doctrine of chance and randomness. All things have come to us with his providential care, even the hard things, even the very dark things, in a certain and very important sense have been orchestrated by God to save you. All things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Or as the first question and answer say, uh, all things work together for my salvation. He will turn even the darkest things, even the most wicked things in your life, he will turn them to your salvation. He did it with the crucifixion, didn't he? He will do it with every bad thing that has come to you in your own life. So that we can say, because the Father loves us, that prosperity comes to make us thankful, and adversity comes to make us 
patient. Paul tells us, as we read in 2 Corinthians, that he and his travel companions faced such terrible suffering and opposition that they thought that they were as good as dead. Why? Paul says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That is the comforting work of the Father in the gospel. If he has done so for Christ, turning the worst possible thing into the best possible thing, then he will do it for you as your heavenly Father. Lastly, God the Holy Spirit comforts us by transforming us. What Christ has done in history, the Holy Spirit now brings to you 2,000 years later. Applies it to you. He is the one who opens our hearts through the preaching of the gospel to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people hear the message of the gospel, but only those whom the, the Holy Spirit has worked upon savingly will receive that gospel and be saved. It is God the Holy Spirit who makes us confident of God's love. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures us of eternal life. When you lack assurance in the Christian life, turn to the Holy Spirit and ask him to deepen that assurance that God loves you and will never forsake you. And he not only makes us more confident and assured of God's love, he also is the one who makes us willing and ready to live for God granting to us that heavenly power without which we would continue on in our sins forever. But he empowers us. He strengthens us. Every part of our lives are now infused by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to live holy lives. Imperfectly, but seriously, as we saw in our series through the Ten Commandments, we will seriously begin to follow not just some, but all of God's commandments with the Spirit's help. Now then, this message of deliverance is what we call the gospel. The law reveals to you that you are a sinner. But it is the message of the gospel which saves. This is the message that the Holy Spirit uses to light the spark of faith. You do not conjure it yourself. And the law doesn't conjure it either. The law necessarily prepares you to have saving faith and to receive Christ by that faith. But the law is not the thing that the Spirit uses to create that faith. He uses the glad tidings of the gospel that Christ has laid down his life to make you his own. That's a message that saves. And it is the source of your comfort, whether you are living or you are taking your last dying breath we have heard of our guilt we have heard of the grace of god now we hear about our gratitude that is the third step to living and dying comfortably one reason for the law is to show us that we're sinners as we've seen now we come to another reason for the law the law has different uses different functions and another reason that we have the law is so that we would now know how to say thank you to God. We remember again by repetition that uh, you are no longer under a covenant of works. 
If you were to belong to a covenant of works, then the law would remain very fearful to you. And it would constantly condemn you and rob you of your joy and of your hope. But you are not under a covenant of works anymore. You've been transferred into a covenant of grace. Now, does that mean that the law goes away? By no means does the law go away. The law remains, but its use to you has been transformed. It does not condemn you anymore. It now guides your Christian gratitude. It is a wonderful guide. It is sweet like honey. It is good and holy and spiritual. There is nothing that we can say in opposition to the law. We merely make a distinction between it and the gospel. And now here we see that one use of the law, one wonderful use of the law, is to show us how to say thank you to God. When you see the utter foolishness and poverty and misery of your sin, the greatness of your sin, when you see that sin has not earned you a slap on the wrist, but it has earned you the fire of hell, when it has actually earned you eternal separation and the almighty fury and wrath of God, only then does the greatness of the grace of God come into clear focus. And then we ask, well, then how do we respond to such a great deliverance, such a great salvation that we've been snatched out of the flames forever and are never heading back there, never on that trajectory again? How then should we live? Well, we should want to say thank you. And not just once and not only with our words, though we do so with our words, but with our entire life, with all of our faculties, our heart, mind, soul and strength. Perpetually, we do so with our dying breath. That's part of what we hope will comfort us when we are on our deathbed or if death comes suddenly, is that we will do so with a heart of gratitude. This is why the last section of the catechism, the gratitude section, is made up of the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Those are the things that you need and you can spend your life meditating on and using to say thank you to God. How to live and how to pray. Remember how Paul spoke at the very beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. His logic was something like this. We have been comforted by God and now we use that same comfort to comfort others. There's a kind of guilt, grace, gratitude thing going on there. When we received comfort from God, now we respond using that same comfort. As God has loved us, so we must learn to love one another. Serving them, helping them, praying for them, and loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is how we are to thank God for such deliverance. Dear brothers and sisters, you are alive today, but the day of death will certainly come. We are taught to number our days. And the consolation of your soul today, it's got to be that that comforts you on the day of your death as well. That you are not your own. You no longer belong to yourself or to the devil for that matter, (laughs) whom you once belonged to, but you belong to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And you are cared for by his God and Father. And you are empowered by his Holy Spirit. Now with this comfort, live for him. Amen.
Let us pray. Our gracious God, you build your church on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. Assist us in meditating with joy on your mighty acts. Enlighten our minds more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Kindle in our hearts a love of your truth. Nourish us with the full counsel of the word of God. Enable us to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and defend us from the sins of heresy and schism. And as we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us, by your great blessing may it be preserved among us and propagated through us by our lips and our lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.